Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. We love movies with Gordon Hayden. This film blew me away. So that's against the rules, and you can't sit with us. Did we just become best friends? Yep. Hasta la vista, baby. And the winner is... We Love Movies with Gordon Hayden. Hello and welcome along to this week's We Love Movies. Coming up, we will be taking a look at what is playing in cinemas this weekend. Uh, Clerks 3, Kevin Smith, um, he has finally decided he's going to cap this trilogy. Um, do, Do we ever really need a trilogy? But we've gotten a third film. If you've seen the trailer, well, you know our thoughts on it. It looks horrendous. Now, it's playing in select cinemas this weekend. We'll be discussing it. Um, Also, George Clooney and Julia Roberts, they've teamed up for a film called Ticket to Paradise, plus Avatar's back in cinemas to remind people about that film because we're getting the sequel this December. Yeah, it's definitely happening. Plus, we're going to be taking a look at some of the best and most underrated films in Steven Spielberg's filmography. Are there underrated films? Well, there's a few. And we'll be revealing those ones very shortly on this week's We Love Movies. We Love Movies with Gordon Hayden on Spin. Yes, you are listening to We Love Movies. I'm Gordon Hayden and I'm joined by film critics Andy McCarroll and Chris Wasser. Before we hear from the lads, I just want to play you a little bit from the trailer to Steven Spielberg's new film. It's called The Fablesman and it's been getting really good reviews, especially out of Toronto where it was in a competition there recently. And this is very much a biography for Steven Spielberg. Now, some would say, well, maybe is it loosely based? I think there's an awful lot there that uh, is very much entwined within his life. We'll be getting into the details in just a sec. But first, here is that little bit from the trailer to The Fablemans. You always have to be the centre of attention. Stop shouting at her! That has been nothing but disrespect from you! I'm your mother! Family, art, it'll tear you in two. You stop making movies, that'll break your mother's heart. I don't know what to do anymore. You do what your heart says you have to. What was your favorite part? So there is a little bit from Steven Spielberg's latest film. It's called The Fablesman. And the Fablemans, I should say. And uh, this is very much semi-autobiographical, Andy. And like, if anyone is familiar with Steven Spielberg's um, family history, they will see very much that this is him trying to put his story front and centre. It's been getting so far reasonably good reviews. Could be an Oscar contender. And it's one that I would imagine is going to very much tug at the heartstrings. Yeah, it's like you said, it's basically semi-autobiographical and even the name like Fableman as the last name, you know, a, a man who tells fables, who could that be describing, you know, none other than Senior Spielbergo himself. It looks really, really good. It looks very award baity as well. A kind of Hollywood love making films that are, you know, about Hollywood or about making films and love to reward them. The one thing that's kind of making me a bit weary of this is anytime you see a filmmaker try and make something semi-autobiographical and oddly enough we'll touch on this with Kevin Smith later it'll be the first time Kevin Smith and, and Steven Spielberg have ever been compared to each other but you see people like like David Fincher who had this like incredible CV and then he made you know a very personal film in Benjamin Button where he was kind of maybe a bit too close to source material and didn't have that kind of you know kill your darlings that you need to, to make that an entertaining film rather than a personal story 
that's the only bit of trepidation I have, which is a weird thing to say about what, in my opinion, is probably the greatest filmmaker of all time. But if I had one bit of that, it seems like a bit of kind of, you know, eating yourself in, in that story, like everything, even the, the cheesy name of the film would have me trepidation. But I'm sure like any other Spielberg film, I'll be 10 minutes in and go, no, no, I was completely wrong to doubt you. Even the score, and I'm not sure if he's working with the great John Williams because John Williams, I think, is very much, I think he's on the the slowdown now because I think Indiana Jones, the, the next one might be his final um a film score I could be wrong on that but the, even the, the music the way it swells in the trailer like this is very much it, it wants you to feel very strongly and emotionally uh, about this Chris we're going to talk very shortly about some of the best the worst and the most underrated of Spielberg but The Fablemans what's it's, what's this doing for you are you intrigued by it are you a little bit kind of going oh god what, why, is he, why does he want to tell this story why does he want to go tell his his, his family roots essentially put it up there front and centre what's your take on it? Oh, I'm quite intrigued by it. I quite enjoyed the trailer too. It's full of uh, wonderful Spielbergian moments. I mean, you know, there are kids riding bikes, uh, either running after, chasing after something or chasing, you know, running away from something. Uh, you know, there, we, we, we see a little bit on, uh, more in the life of this little boy who grows up to be a sort of Spielberg figure, actually working on a film set. We see him as a little boy using his hands as a projector. All of that is quite magical. Um, and also just the, the 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 score, as you said there, the the it is... It, it has been uh, composed and, and 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 arranged by John Williams. I think John Williams at one stage said that Indiana Jones Five was going to be his last film, but then Spielberg might have come along and said, "Wait, actually, I have I have another project for you." So between that, uh, so between the Fablemans and Indiana Jones, we are looking at you know the 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 end of John Williams' career here. You know he is going to go after this. I think Spielberg has been kind of. I'm all right with him getting a little bit semi-autobiographical because, I mean, such a fuss has been made about this being, you know, almost like the Spielberg story. He's been putting himself in the story for years. I'm going to talk in a little while um, and hopefully enjoy it about Close Encounters, which is my favorite Spielberg film. And again, there were elements of his life in that. He's almost, almost always put elements of his upbringing or his family or something about his father into his work. So I'm all here for that. And also I'm all here for uh, an excellent Michelle Williams performance because it has been a while. And wouldn't it be great to see Michelle Williams and also Hirsch get some award awards buzz because the reviews coming out of um, Toronto are that this might be the greatest performance that Judd Hirsch has given in about 20 or 30 years and closing in on, on, on his 90th year it would be amazing to see him get an Academy Award nomination so I'm, I'm, I'm excited for this Judd Hirsch I think for those that are kind of going who, who is he probably uh, maybe over this side of the world he probably might be best known as remember the father Jeff Goldman's father in Independence Day now is, am I right in saying that's the that's, actor that's absolutely him yep yeah, he's a fantastic actor. Yeah. He is. Now, I do, from what I heard from Toronto, in terms of the only sort of nagging area within the Fablemans is that there are a few subplots which kind of make the film feel a bit baggy. But otherwise, it is an absolutely superb piece of work. And you just forget how many films that Spielberg churns out. What was it? Was it six months ago when he made West Side Story? Like, it's incredible his work ethic still, Andy. Yeah, 33 films, I think it is, he has now. And as you call, like, there's very few people that make 33 anything, and you'd look at it and go, there isn't something you'd say is terrible on there. Obviously, there's, the, the quality is better in some than others. But he has been extremely prolific while still being relevant. We talked about people like Robert Zemeckis uh, last week with Pinocchio, who you know reached a certain point and then his work just fell off a cliff. That never happened with Spielberg. And probably the only comparison you'd have is Martin Scorsese. That has had this, you know, long career, but managed to maintain 
you know his level at the highest game you know he's, he's the Messi or Ronaldo of, of directing you know it, it's it almost doesn't make any sense how he's still able to to churn these out but without ever having he's not relying on tropes you know like some like Tim Burton where you'd look at it and go oh yeah you know you're, you're making the same film five times in a row like the Fableman's West Side Story and then before that was Ready Player One three more different films you couldn't possibly think to make yeah, it's incredible just how prolific Spielberg is and how he has just maintained that level of quality. Whereas you have directors, and we've spoken before about Quentin Tarantino saying, look, I think that there's a lot of filmmakers that reached an expiry date. Hence why that he wants to get out of it after his 10th film, because he feels that's when the quality starts to wane. 33 films from Spielberg and the quality is still as strong as ever. Um, let's just talk about his filmography. You mentioned, Chris, about Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I just want to play a little bit of audio because Spielberg, many moons ago, was on Inside the Actor's Studio with James Lipton. And James Lipton managed to give Spielberg, it was almost like this moment where it was, it was like a, a punch to the chest for Spielberg emotionally because Lipton, almost there and then, figured out what Close Encounters of the Third Kind was really all about. And Spielberg didn't realise it. I, I, For those that haven't seen this, but you're definitely going to hear it now, obviously. But I just want to play this bit of audio. This is a great moment from inside the actor's studio. Your father was a computer scientist. Your mother was a musician. When the spaceship lands, how do they communicate? That's they... a very good question. I like that. <laughs> You've answered the question. They make music on their computers sure. and they are able to speak to each other. And you see, I'd love to say, you know, I intended that and I realized that was my mother and father, but not until this moment. <laughs> Thank you for that. So there is Spielberg, really uh, absolutely uh, flummoxed by James Lipton, managing to really uncover what a Close Encounters of the Third Kind is all about. Chris, this uh, was uh, Spielberg's follow-up film to Jaws, and by that point, he could make anything he wanted. But the studio in question, uh, I think it was Sony, they were very much like, okay, you need to get this into production as soon as possible. We have a gap to fill. We need money to make, and anything Alien-esque should generate receipts at the box office. But also, what's quite interesting, though, Chris, is when Spielberg made Close Encounters of the Third Kind, he was a single man at the time. I wonder how different this film would have ended now that he is a father. Would the lead character that Dreyfus plays have made the same decision? So it's interesting where Spielberg was at the time. First question to you, do you think that the the ending would change if it was more of a family man who had written it? Absolutely. I have seen Close Encounters probably more times than, than I've watched any other Spielberg film. And the final scene, um, let's go with the original version because, you know, he did go back and change it at one stage and he regrets, you know, showing you the inside of that spaceship, which is probably a spoiler 45 years on for anyone who hasn't seen it. Um, but the idea that Roy leaves behind his kids and leaves behind the Earth to, you know, go off and do whatever he does in the spaceship and uh, uh, go on a bit of a, a galaxy quest. It is ludicrous, you know, and Spielberg has said that, you know, he hadn't got kids at the time. And if he was making the film years later, 10, 20 years or whatever it is, he, he would not have put that in there because as I said, you know, there, there are semi-autobiographical thing, elements in this film and he is trying to create a film about, you know, what life was like for him as a kid. I mean, he said that, and let's remember too that, that when Spielberg, before even Spielberg made Jaws, he had signed a deal to make 
a film about extraterrestrials. Now, the studio that pumped the money up first didn't actually think that he was going to make a film about friendly extraterrestrials. I think they thought they were going to get a bit of a War of the Worlds thing, and he'd give that to us eventually, you know, his own take on the HGL story. But he wanted to create something a little bit, you know, more fa- not not family-friendly as such, but just a film where, you know, visitors from outer space weren't trying to blow us up. But he also wanted to create a story about family, about, you know, everyday survival, you know, familial heartache. Uh, he drew on his own experiences. I mean, he did tell a story at one stage about how his dad uh, once, you know, burst into his bedroom and woke him and the family up during the night so that they could go outside and watch a meteor shower, you know? And and there is an awful lot in there about, you know, a father figure, you know, being put to the test and, you know, having this existential crisis at the dinner table and asking, you know, who am I and what's all this about and why are we here? And it's it yes, it's a film about aliens visiting and, you know, a, a government uh, cover-up and all sorts of banana stuff, you know. At one stage, I think even NASA didn't want this film released. But as I said, it's a film about being a dad and being a son and just trying to find out what your family, you know, what all of these extraordinary things are you know, going on it's out in your back garden are all about. So it's a very personal film. And I think if he was making it nowadays, he'd change that ending. Just going to pause it ever so slightly. Chris, yeah, that's still rattling there now. What, I, what? I, tur- I turned up it? the... Yeah, it's just could, hear, could you still hear that, Andy? Just a yeah, yeah, bit. I could. Yeah, it's just still a little bit there. Are you on, are you on a headset or a mic? I'm on, I'm on a headset. Right, is it moving the the uh, the mic when you're talking? No, um, I'm just gonna take it off for one second. Just make sure it's cool. Thanks, Chris. Um... Is it uh, is it a kind of a, like that? Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's yeah, it. Yeah, I moved the, the headset there and it, and it got a little bit creaky. I've never haven't noticed that before. Now, maybe it's a little bit, maybe it got flattened in my fucking bag. Um, now, what if I, now I'm holding on to the, the wire now. Is it still making the noise? Just keep it down there. Uh, one, two, three, one, two, three. No, that's fine. That's perfect. There. Yeah, I'd say like that. The, the cable was just ever so slightly knocking off it. Do you want me to, uh, you want me to uh, shout on again about the no, last no, 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 no. Oh, Jesus, no, no, no. Uh, that was all, it was all good, Chris. No, no, we, we, we've plenty there. Um, actually, I'm going to jump in there. Chris, another thing I suppose you could say about Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and, and you touched on the fact that he did go back, he did add scenes in because um, if memory serves me right, Spielberg had said that even though he, he got to make this film that he really wanted to, and he hasn't written many screenplays over the years, believe it or not, and he had written the screenplay to Close Encounters, but he just felt like it was still shy of a few scenes that he, that really grated him, that he knew he could make it better. But the studio said, yeah, we'll give you the money. You can yeah. go back and you can make this director's cut, but you have to show us inside the mothership, which, again, he didn't want to do, but he felt, unless I can get these scenes that I know will make it better, I have to do this. But I suppose in one way, it was almost the start of these director's cuts that the like we've seen time and time again, where like we've seen with Blade Runner, even Oliver Stone's Alexander. How many cuts did that get? About three. So it did kind of herald that side of things as well. For you, though, what is the better cut? I think have we had three cuts of uh, Close Encounters or was it just the two. We actually had three and the better cut will always be the original. Um, and yeah, Columbia, because because Close Encounters made so much money at the box office, you're talking 300 million. They gave him another million and a half and said, you know, years later, listen, if you want to show us the inside of this, you know, mothership, go ahead. And so he did. And unfortunately, you know, bringing us inside that spaceship, you know, and for anyone at the time, obviously I, I wasn't alive at the time, you know, I saw the film years later, but the first time you see it, you know, if you see that first cut, you are wondering to yourself, I wonder what's going on in there. 
And then to show us just spoils the mystery. And in the late 1980s, like, you know, look, the film was actually released. I think it was actually the early 1980s. The film was re-released uh, in cinemas with that, you know, couple of minutes added on to the end of it. And it actually grossed another 50 minutes at the box office. But a few years later, Spielberg said, oh, I'm not happy with it. And he changed it again, removed those scenes and basically, you know, re-released the film again. And you think other filmmakers, let's say Ridley Scott, will look at it and go, this probably isn't a healthy practice, you know, yeah. going back and changing the film and, and kind of spoiling things for audiences. So there's three versions of the film going around. If you have never seen it before, try and watch that original. Don't go, don't go with the one where you see inside the, the box. No one wants to see inside the box. So for you, Chris, Close Encounters of the Third Kind is uh, your favourite uh, Spielberg film. Andy, for you, we're still staying with the whole alien side of things. And it is one of his absolute classics from 1982 many felt probably was robbed of an Oscar by Richard Attenborough's Gandhi uh, and the film in question of course is E.T. Why does it hold a special place in your heart? Yeah this is the one that I've kind of got most back and forth with I think it's about 27 messages in, in the Wheel of Movies what's after saying you know oh it's Jurassic Park no wait it's Jaws no wait it's this it's Raiders no wait I'll go back to E.T. This I think I just watched it at the perfect time like I, I was pretty much Elliot's age when I saw this and I think as a, the more I got, I watched it with the re-release then, and you can just see a master at work here. Like we're talking about directors like like Tim Burton. You, you watch a Tim Burton, any of Tim Burton's films for five minutes without knowing what it is, you go, yeah, that's a Tim Burton film. Same with uh, like the likes of the Coen brothers or Tarantino. Like you could hear a Tarantino film and you, you'll know that it's it. I think what makes him so good is he doesn't have a definitive style. He's so natural and kind of intuitive as a storyteller that you just get lost in a Spielberg movie that I don't think I do for anyone else. Like he doesn't rely on tropes. There's nothing visual. There's no like JJ Abrams the lens for it. There's no trademark where you look at that and go, he's using tricks. You know, I can see the strings and how he's doing it. And then even like I was watching ET, there's a shot at the start where ET's walking in the forest and the camera just pans up one of the, the redwood trees. And it is the most heartbreaking shot, I think. I was nearly bursting into tears just looking at that. And it's just that confidence he has in telling the story and knowing that, look, you are going to buy into this concept and I am going to you know, make you cry for about 40 minutes in the cinema, as it was in my case. <laughs> and we, we touched upon it as well with Jaws when we were talking last week. It's the little scenes that aren't on the poster or aren't in the trailer. The ones like, you know, the, when, uh, when uh, Roy Snyder's character says to his kid, give me a kiss. And he says, why? Because I need it. it. It's that little human moment in it. It's that little immersive experience. It's all the little add-on extras. Like, yeah, you can say, you know, John, oh, it's Killer Shark, it's fantastic and all this. E.T., you know, the, the alien you know, befriends a boy. It's those, you know, the, the moment where he's turning grey and Elliot's being pulled away. It, it's the story aspect of it is the one that sticks to me. I think that's why these resonate in ways that, you know, things like the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe won't because it doesn't have those emotional beats. And I think that's why people who, you know, grew up with certain Spielberg films have such revenants. Like someone who's, a, you know, a, a big Indiana Jones fan, you say, oh, there's nothing like Indiana Jones or oh, there's, there's nothing like Jaws. It just burrows into your soul in a way I don't think any other filmmaker, certainly not in my lifetime has. And I, very hard to see how anyone can do that again because so much aspect is placed on different things other than actually getting the story and getting the emotional beats right. Uh, one of the great finds within E.T. as well is the cast and Henry Thomas. And it's it's shocking to believe that 
they were only weeks out from filming and they hadn't found Elliot. I think it was like six weeks from filming and there was no Elliot. And there was a, I think he was a DP primarily, but had also directed a film. The, the, the man's name is, uh, um, just has gone from my head. But he sent on the um, some reels of um, uh, of um, of Henry Thomas to Spielberg saying, look, I found this great actor. I'm, I, I know you're in a bind at the moment. You can't find your Elliot. Maybe you should give this young guy a shot. And it's up on YouTube where that audition and... Henry Thomas breaks down crying and it, he just is emotionally charged. And you do hear Spielberg at the very end saying, you got the job, kid. It's like unbelievable. They got their Elliot at the at the nearly what was like the 11th hour. And uh, so it's an incredible performance all around. And of course, Drew Barrymore is Gertie who's remained close friends with Spielberg to this day. What an absolute gem. Do you know what? Before we go on, let's just take a little bit from E.T. E.T., can you say that? Can you say E.T.? E.T. 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 good. So there is, of course, a little bit from E.T. Chris, during that clip, you said to me about a drawing a line between Close Encounters of the Third Kind and E.T. Reveal all. I think it's fascinating that we both picked, you know, his his big alien movies. And as I said, you can draw a line from Close Encounters to, to, to E.T. because the studio wanted a sequel. And Spielberg was at one of these moments in his career where he thought he was fond of sequels. And he's always been, you know, hit and miss with them over the years. But he developed a sequel called Night Skies. And it wasn't going to be a real, you know, like a proper official follow-up. But it was going to be more of a companion piece to Close Encounters. And he was inspired to create this horror film based on what's called the Kelly Hopskinville encounter. And it was an alleged close encounter from the 1950s, a true-ish story that was said to have involved a gang of aliens descending upon a family farmhouse in Kentucky. And an awful lot of money went into the development of this story, but eventually Spielberg shelved it. But that Night Sky screenplay would one day be picked up by a screenwriter by the name of Melissa Madison. And she fell in love with the part about the aliens forming a bond with a boy on that farm. And that became E.T. And also the horror elements were then pumped into, into two other films, Poltergeist and Gremlins. Wow. And one of that element, just to go even further, became another screenplay called Fire in the Sky about the the abduction side. And that starred Henry Thomas from E.T. Oh, I did not know that. That's cool. Gent, wow. It was like a trivia off there. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. That's great. Tell you, for any Spielbergian fans there, they're going to love all that. That's fantastic. Um, I, actually, now I want to move on to what would be deemed your all-time favorite scene in a Spielberg film. Uh, Andy, what's it for you? For me, I just again, because I saw it at quite an impressionable age as well, the forced arrival of the T-Rex in Jurassic Park. And we, and we kind of touched about it earlier, the way Spielberg shoots his films. Like obviously watching the film, was like, oh my God, there's a massive dinosaur being brought to life. But just the, the, the visual choices he makes to kind of support this, you know, that the water in the glass, just, you know, the famous story, he had the guitar string in, plucking him, just see. The, the sense of dread getting more and more. And of course, the, the brilliant John Williams score just taking over the sound. And then you just see that foot come down. And even now, like that was from 1993. Watching it now, it still has that impact. That was because a lot of the effects were practical. I just remember seeing that in the, in the classic cinema for the first time. And just when that foot, it was before, you know, the only trade I'd seen was literally the logo and the foot hitting the mud and then the, the pan up and the reveal just absolutely jaw-dropping for me. And 
I, I can't think of any other cinema moments where I just looked at and went, oh my God, like just being absolutely lost in that moment. Just, okay, I'm obsessed with dinosaurs for the next three years now <laughs> off the back of this scene. So very little has, has done before and I don't think anything has done it since. And just nothing for me stands out like that, like that Jurassic Park moment. Chris, is there a moment from his back catalogue Spielberg that resonates still with you? I think so. I think I'll move away from the alien pictures and talk for a moment about Saving Private Ryan. There's been a lot of, you know, uh, there's been a, a huge conversation about Saving Private Ryan in the in the decade since it's released. That it's a very ordinary war film with an extraordinary opening, and I think that kind of sums it up. I mean, look, it, it is a decent film, but those opening 20 minutes are unlike anything else I've seen since in a war picture. And that includes, you know, look, I thought Chris Nolan's Dunkirk was just breathtaking and, and as close to perfect as you can get. But that Save a Private Ryan opening when the US Army lands in Omaha Beach and Spielberg's decision to not have any score underneath and to bring you into this claustrophobic, terrifying setting where you can see the, you know, the, the, the terrified expression on every soldier face and then it just um, the, the horror that unfolds afterwards it's it's an extraordinary piece of cinema and again it it, it you you forget for a moment that you're almost watching a film it's it's it's, it's yeah there were stories afterwards that screen uh, spielberg uh, uh screened it for veterans and that you know some veterans had to get up and walk out you know it was just bringing back too many uh, horrifying memories uh it is it's 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 as close to a horror film as a war film can guess and i think everything else afterwards is a little bit too ordinary given the extraordinary opening so it's probably that that for me is just a scene that's never been beaten great choice there gentlemen um all round um i'm just going to go through now some of the what would you consider his underrated films? Um, Andy, start with you. Which ones just really should have gotten the love, but they didn't? I think it's, it's strange to call a Spielberg film underrated. And the two that stick out for me, I could even more to say a Spielberg film with Tom Hanks and Leonardo DiCaprio is underrated. But when you see like, it wasn't nominated for any Oscars, I think other than the score and Christopher Walken for a supporting actor. It's not as if you could say it was a banner year. I think Chicago won that year. To me, that's just a great, old school movie and it's not on the, one on the film in question is catch me if you can it would be helpful if I gave the name Gordon you're absolutely right as well <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was going very Frank Abagnale that you know kind of con artist you in there and, and give the reveal at the end but yeah <laughs> catch me if you can just a, a fun kind of throwback movie I think one of DiCaprio's best performances I think one of Hanks's as well and the other film on my list is, is another Spielberg Hanks joint Bridge of Spies, which introduced me to, to Mark Rylance, who I assume was one of these actors that, you know, had been squirreling away in movies in the background for years. But it turns out this was one of his, I think it was his only second film and he's only made five in his whole career. He is the big reveal for me in this. I think he is absolutely incredible. That scene where Tom Hanks, and again, a very understated performance from Tom Hanks, he, he's smothering with a cold pretty much the whole way through the film. It's not the big kind of award-grabbing Tom Hanks um, performance that we see in a lot of things. He's very kind of you know, like like a pile of dirty clothes, snuffling with dirty tissues the whole time. But Mark Rylance is absolutely unbelievable in this. The the moments with the two of them, where you know Tom Hanks is like laying out, you know, you, you could essentially be getting sent back to be killed here. You don't seem panicked, and just the way Mark Rylance went, would it help? It's fantastic. And he won the Oscar of the fact I think he deserved it for that scene alone. But to me, that's again an underrated Spielberg film that I, I doubt would be in many people's, you know, top five list, which kind of goes to show more about the the quality of his CV as opposed to I think the quality of Bridges Spies. 
Yeah, it's kind of interesting with the, with the trajectory his career has gone. Especially there was a, there was a period where he was really wanted to move away from the blockbusters and it around the kind of the Schindler's List uh, and um, and uh, Saving Private Ryan. And then he was getting into some sort of the, the, the political side of things. You know, we would like the Munich and then and, and Lincoln and films which have been dotted over his career. Uh, Chris, just for you in terms of an underrated film, which which stands out. Yeah, again, it's quite odd to say underrated Spielberg film to put that into a sentence, but I've always had an awful lot of love for The Terminal. Uh, you know, it's probably 16, 18 years since its release. Uh, you know, The World and Its Mother has seen it at this stage, but, you know, it didn't get an awful lot of love when it came out. And Tom Hanks is playing, you know, this Eastern European chap who unfortunately ends up in a bit of a, a travel limbo because he's trying to leave John F. Kennedy Airport in, in New York, but he, he, he can't, you know, get legal entry to the U.S. And then he also is unable to return to his native country because this military coup has broken out um so he's trapped in a terminal and he has to make you know the uh, you know ends meet while he's there he has to you know try and uh you know make himself comfortable he gets a job he's got this you know customs uh, uh fella played by stanley tucci on his back all the time he falls in love with it with a with a uh, an air hostess played by Catherine zeta jones i know an awful lot of people gave this a hard time and said oh it's a little too hokey and oh it's a little bit too stagey but i don't think it's anything other than what it's trying to be it is trying to be those things it's a crowd pleaser it's quite heartwarming steven spielberg knew exactly what he was doing he was just trying to have fun with one of the world's greatest actors and would also with a fabulous ensemble and everyone involved is just trying to have as much fun as they can with a barmy story that actually has its roots in a real life tale so and i also think that tom hanks gives one of its warmest performances here um so yeah i i had i it's very it's very Stanley Tucci and Tom Hanks in that film, I think it's a far better film. That's the oh, if you were to if you were to get other actors, you mean? If no, if you were to have Stanley Tucci play the Tom Hanks character, I think it's a far better. I think the the issue I have with the terminal is I think Tom Hanks is miscast, which is the the, the second film I've said about this year. I just think him playing kind of you know a Middle Eastern you know bumbling fool, and when you're like, well, that's clearly Tom Hanks. I think if Stanley Tucci played that, or even Mark Rylance, I think that's a far far better film. Oh, I actually, no, the reason I like Tom Hanks in this film is because it's almost a throwback. It's a reminder. And he does this every now and then that I started in comedies, guys. You know, I was acting alongside dogs. I was making, you know, the the the, the film with the mermaid. I did all of these family friendly movies. And I just want to show you that I can still do that sort of thing. And I just I, I just thought they're I thought they were perfect for the roles that they were in. But also that does sound like an interesting movie, Andy. And very quickly, the BFG. I had an awful lot of time for the BFG and an awful lot of love for it because one, it was great to see Melissa Madison and Steven Spielberg working together again. And two, this is the kind of film that Robert Zemeckis has been trying to make his entire for the entire second half of his career. This, you know, uh, gorgeous blend of live action and CGI that's purely aimed at, you know, getting families to, you know, go to the pictures together. And it's a wonderful story. You know the story, but it's wonderfully, you know, revised and remade and reimagined by the world's greatest filmmaker. And I think it, it did not deserve the kicking it got when it came out. Yeah, I didn't really connect now with the BFG. I, I have to be perfectly honest with you. But I think that was a period where Spielberg really wanted to, I think, get a real good sense of CGI and that level of filmmaking that that Cameron had been developing with Avatar and of course he'd used with the likes of Tintin. And I, I throw in Tintin as, uh, as one of his underrated pieces of work. Gents, time is catching up with us so unfortunately we have to keep this uh, this next answer from both of you quite short. But Andy, for you, is there a worst film that uh, Spielberg has uh, put out on his, uh, put out in cinemas? 
Yeah, there's only two films, I think, in his entire series that I say I really didn't enjoy. Ready Player One, it being one of them, it's kind of, you know, an unwatchable film from an unreadable book. It's just basically if, you know, the, the pop culture section of HMV fell on you. It, it doesn't make any sense. It's, you know, the, the key and this, and it's just a lot of nonsense. Grant, put that to one side. But for me, the most disappointing is Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, because to me, he just made the most perfect adventure trilogy and then he threw Shia LaBeouf and CGI aliens and nuke the fridge and Shia LaBeouf doing jungle gym with a lot of monkeys chasing them you're just looking at going this feels like a Brett Ratner film not a Steven Spielberg film and it's hard to believe he made that and it kind of you know George Lucas apparently had a lot to say on the story on this and there's the famous recording of Raiders of the Lost Ark where George Lucas is trying to give his suggestions and Spielberg is pretty much saying, no, 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 no. And ends up creating this you know, iconic character because he didn't listen to George Lucas. I think Crystal Skull is the film Raiders would have been had he listened to George Lucas initially. So maybe it's a good flashpoint in history to say, this is what happens when you go to George Lucas. <laughs> and Chris, finally, finally for you, what do you consider to be Spielberg's worst film? I did not hate Ready Player One, but it's probably one of the few Spielberg films, and I include even Hook in this, that I have absolutely no desire to watch again. I accept the fact that he just, you know, lost the run of himself for a minute and decided that he wanted to make his own version of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Yes, I know it's based on the novel by Ernest Cline, but what Spielberg did with it was far too close to Charlie's adventure. Um, and, you know, it had its moments, but again, I have no desire to watch it again. So I think, actually, I would agree with Andy, surprise, surprise, that Indy 4 is the worst because it's completely unnecessary he did he made just such a perfect trilogy there whatever problems we might have with that second indiana jones film it's just a glorious trilogy of films let down by this greedy fourth chapter that made no sense whatsoever and the only reason we're getting a fifth indiana jones film is because a everyone involved wants to make an awful lot of money from it but b they know that they have a few wrongs to right very well said. Chris Wasser, Andy McCarroll, thank you for your thoughts there on all things Spielberg. The Fablesman will definitely be a one to watch when it hits cinemas and by all accounts will be an awards contender as well. Still to come on We Love Movies, we will be taking a look at what is new in cinemas. We Love Movies with Gordon Hayden on Spin. Welcome back to part two of We Love Movies. We're now going to turn our attention to what is new in cinemas this weekend. A film which I don't think has anyone really been clambering for apart from the filmmaker in question, Kevin Smith. We're getting a third Clerks movie. When we saw the trailer to this, Andy, it looked god awful. Yeah, I was very apprehensive about this, as I have been for a lot of Kevin Smith stuff recently. He seems to be trying to, to go back to the well with his classic hits, and they're not working, as we saw with the, the J.M. Bob reboot. I loved Clerks 2. I thought Clerks 2 was as good as, if not better, than the original. Unfortunately, that was 2006, and since then, he has just made groaning after groaning lumbersome films like Tusk or Yoga Hosers where it seems to be oh look I mates with Johnny Depp here's Johnny Depp in my film now not really something to boast about at the moment because Johnny Depp's career has been in a spiral for about 20 years as well so not the person who's going to drag you out of the hole I want this to be good so but I'd like this to be the bookend to that trilogy you know the, the Clerks being the one about his 20s this being his 30s and then Clerks 4 kind of you know after having his own heart attack the main character in this has his own heart attack and then goes back to to make a film about his life so the whole Clerk saga coming full circle there I, I don't hold out much hope the trailer looked absolutely god awful it didn't have any of the you know the zip or the energy that Clerks 2 had 
maybe I'll be proven wrong, but to be honest, off the back of the last, what, five or six Kevin Smith films, I'm not holding out a lot of hope. And all I keep thinking is, goddamn Seth Rogen for introducing that man to weed because that seems to be the only thing he can focus on now as opposed to being, you know, the next Richard Linkletter. <laughs> He's become the next Tommy Chong. Oh, no. Hey, Chris, where is it playing this weekend? Is it, there's a, I think there's only about two cinemas that are playing it. Yeah, there's not an awful lot of marketing, especially on this side of the world behind it. It's going to be playing in the Lighthouse Cinema and then in its sister cinema, the Palace Cinema in Galway. Um, and I think that's about it. Um, yeah, not an awful lot of buzz behind this one. Uh, we've spoken about Kevin Smith on the show before. And, you know, I I have love for the guy. And I think I said this the last time too. I would happily have a beer with that chap and I would happily listen to him talk. I, you know, it doesn't even have to be a conversation. It'd be a Kevin Smith lecture for two or three hours. He is a fabulous storyteller. I will say it again. If you've never seen it, go on YouTube and look up Kevin Smith's basically just talking about the Nicolas Cage Superman film that was never oh, made. That's brilliant. It's just fantastic. That's the um, evening with Kevin Smith, the evening with Kevin Smith. I've gone to see it yes. in Vicar Street pretty much nearly every year and I've gone to see it every single time. I used to be on the, the View Askew message boards back in the day. <laughs> I even loved the, the Jay and Bob, the animated ones. Like I have all of his books. I absolutely adored Kevin Smith. So it gives me no joy in seeing you know the, the path he's gone on since because I was someone who has, you know, VHS and DVDs stacked a mile high of everything the man has done. And like Chris said, I could listen to him read the phone book. He just is the most charismatic storyteller considering he gave himself what he called it, the Marcel Marceau part, the silent part in the yeah. movie. So yeah, I, 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 oh, I'm rooting for him so much because he just seemed like a genuinely good guy as well. I've come across some decent reviews for Clerks 3. I mean, it, you know, it has been picking up a lot of reviews that say it is quite heartwarming that, you know, it's uh, it's this emotional comeback for the characters and the fact that Smith is kind of working his own, you know, uh, uh, what, what, what happened to him a few years ago into the story. And there's an awful lot of goodwill behind this one, especially too. If you even look at the cast sheet, the amount of big names that have come back to support, you know, their, their, their colleague and their friend, it could surprise the hell out of us, but I've long since given up hope on, you know, Kevin Smith kind of, you know, giving us another film that we might come away from and go, that wasn't half bad because it's been a while. Fingers crossed for it. The trailer, now if you see it, it doesn't look the best. It looks very, very cheap. But look, we will keep an open mind and uh, fingers crossed for all things uh, Clerks 3 that it does deliver. Let us move on. George Clooney, Julia Roberts, they've teamed up for a film. It's called Ticket to Paradise. Before we chat about it, here's a little bit from it. I won't let her throw her life away. We need to trick her into dumping him. As much as this will pain us both, we have to call a truce to make this work. That'd be a lockstep. Hey, did you make a pact to not murder each other until you murder me first? We are here for you, my love. Yes, we're in lockstep. Yes. Promise, no mean comments. Pretty sure you don't win anything for eating the whole pig. No arguing. Get off, get off. No passive aggression. What about aggressive aggression? Try to keep the snoring down. I have a nasal strip. It's a mystery, you're still alone. Mom, Dad, this is G'day. I'm supposed to ask you G'day. You learned that to make me look bad. You don't need my help there. So there's a little bit from Ticket to Paradise starring George Clooney and Julia Roberts, two of the most likable leads that you can get. And it only made sense for for financiers to put them both together. Andy, what's going on with the plot? It's two divorcers played by Clooney and Julia Roberts. Their daughter has gone off to Bali. She's met one of the locals there, a seaweed fisherman, and she's decided to get married. The two of them have divorced. They absolutely hate each other, but they're going there to try and team up and break up the daughter's wedding, essentially, thinking she's made a, a huge mistake. And then over the course of that, they might you know, realize that they're, they're meant for each other and fall hopelessly back in love together. 
Do you remember a film? Sorry, I'm going to go off on a slight tangent here now, but um, it just has very as shades of this type of plot. And um, Chris, remember about Schmidt and uh, the Alexander Payne film with Jack Nicholson, where he uh, the wife dies, he's ended up retiring, and he gets this RV and he decides to travel across country in order to stop his daughter from getting married. And it's very Alexander Payne altogether. And then at the end, he kind of sort of semi warms to the her husband to be, even though he feels that she that she's way out of his league. I love that film. This to me just feels like the the big budget Hollywood rom-com version of that story. And that probably glides along because of the likable leads. Yeah, definitely. I don't think it possesses any of the wit or the, you know, quirky charm of of, of about Schmidt. But it is, you, you have old Parker here who's given us, you know, the best uh, exotic Marigold Hotel uh, and also Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, which I loved. Um, you have him kind of just relying a little too heavily on the star waters of Clooney and Roberts. And let's face it, their star waters combined to power an entire village. And that's okay because I think at the end of the day, I'd sooner have Clooney and Roberts up on the screen together than not have them in another film. Because, you know, it has been a while since they worked together. They made Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, the first two Oceans film. They even managed to make a film as ridiculously stupid as Money Monster almost work just because it was the two of them involved. But here, they're kind of churning out this sort of 90s, rom-com that maybe Clooney but definitely Roberts would have you know made you know those kind of inoffensive uh intentionally formulaic screwball capers where you know people who kind of you know say that they don't like each other secretly love each other that's the kind of thing that they're going for here and and because it's them and because they're so likable and because I think this is the sort of ordinary rom-com they were trying to make I didn't hate it how'd you get on with it Andy I it just to me the whole thing felt. And I saw the the interview with him on the Late Late Show, and the whole way through it, I kept thinking this is a tax break movie. And Clooney <laughs> confirmed that he pretty much said he called Julia Roberts and said, "Oh, do you want to go to Australia for three months?" And that's what it feels like. Everyone here is phone. Like you, you said that like the star wattage of Clooney and Roberts, who we know have charisma to born and can be absolutely incredible. This to me looked like, and again, if it's the second time for some reason I mentioned footballers in the show, it just looks like you know messy doing, you know, keepy uppies in the middle of the pitch as opposed to actually playing a match. He's just on complete autopilot. He's like, I can do this in my sleep. I don't, there's no need to make any effort here. And even Caitlin Denver, who plays uh, their their daughter in the movie, she was in a show called Dope Sick with, uh, with Michael Keaton this year. If you haven't seen it, it's on Disney+. Plus. It is harrowing. It is absolutely fantastic. It's one of the best shows I've seen in years. And she is incredible in it. She is like a charisma vacuum in this. The same with her, her friend who's playing you know, the, the funny support friend. Everyone just seems like they've taken a load of, you know, quaaludes before the film and have just completely phoning it in or they're all suffering from the hangovers of, of hanging out in Australia for three months that no one thought, you know, maybe maybe put a bit of effort onto the screen as you are behind the screen, clearly partying your asses off. Oh my God, it's like they've, uh, the way Adam Sandler's film descended before he did the deal with Netflix, where it was like, how do I just get my friends together and we just go on holidays and, and make a film all around? So this is a disappointing fare altogether. Out of 10, what are we giving it, Chris? Uh, I'm I, I'm afraid to tell you, Gordon, because I don't want Andy's voice going all high-pitched again, as it did, you know, a couple of weeks back when we were reviewing Fall. I'm going to go with six, because I actually thought this was just a big, fat grand. I enjoyed watching them. I will say, it's more of a drama then it is a comedy. It could do with a few more zingers, a few better zingers. But Clooney, you know, he's quite good in a few scenes here with the with the you know with the idea of this uh, you know divorced dad kind of regretting how the relationship all went wrong. I thought he was kind of he was he was better than he needed to be basically. But I got on fine with this. It's fine. 
He's definitely not better than he needs to be. He is just completely <laughs> an autopilot. I can't. I, I know you're trying to make my voice go high with six. It is the blandest, most inoffensive nothing that you forget as you're watching it. it, it it's four out of ten for me, and it's just like. I had to go back and read this and I was like, I've not seen this like two days ago. I was like, what the hell happened in that thing? And I was like, oh yeah, 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 great. Yeah, Julia Roberts and George Clooney went on holiday and I had to pay to the privilege of watching that apparently. So it's a four out of 10 for me. I'm going to throw in another Alexander Payne film that if you kind of want to see Clooney in better fare, it seems, uh, check him out into The Descendants, which is, a, I, I really enjoy that yeah. Alexander yeah. Payne film where you get to see him go on holidays, but he's made to work for it. Um, can I just throw something in here? I finally got around to watching uh, Thor Love and Thunder. It's now on Disney Plus and it strikes me as a film similar to Tenet and the only reason I can compare it to Tenet is that it's when a studio allows a director to go, go off and make whatever they want because uh, they're in the good boy books and Tenet I thought was an absolute mess but I think Thor Love and Thunder is an equal mess because it is like it's uh, look I get I granted I know they've upped the camp factor because I think Taika Waititi is desperate to make uh, Flash Gordon but it's almost as if Marvel now don't care about uh, special effects anymore or they're working their VFX artists to the absolute bone because some of this looks so cheap and shoddy and the jokes are completely misfire. The whole thing is flat. And I think at this point that Taika Bititi needs to be just taken out of all things Thor and, um, and away from Marvel. He felt like the wrong man for the gig and whatever he thought in his head was funny did not translate onto that screen. I just had no time for this whatsoever. And I had a lot of time for Thor Ragnarok. And by all accounts, Jeff Goldblum was left on the cutting room floor. How he could edit out Jeff Goldblum is beyond me. One of the best things about that Thor Ragnarok. I had no patience for um, uh, the, the fourth Thor entry and it's just descended into an absolute mess. Chris, will you? <laughs> I can't remember actually our thoughts on Thor uh, uh, Love and Thunder. Um, what did you think of it? I, if I can recall, I think my, myself and Andy uh, agreed on Thor Love and Thunder being, you know, an absolute hoot at the time. Uh, now, saying that, the stuff about the visual effects artists and also, remember that video doing the rounds of Tessa Thompson and uh, uh, Taika Waititi? They were kind of going through scenes from Thor Love and Thunder and they stop on an image of Korg and they say, well, that doesn't look very impressive. You know, I'm afraid now of, of, of watching it on the big screen and kind of noticing all the flaws about it. But at the time, which is only, what, two or three months ago, I got on very well with it. I mean, there's an awful lot going on and it may be a bit too much. And there's, you know, you have Taika Waititi trying way too hard to emulate, you know, the, the, the winning combination of drama and comedy and zaniness and action that you saw in Thor Ragnarok that was so well balanced. I think everything is probably a little bit too off balance in this one, but I thought it looked amazing. You know, it did make me laugh. Uh, it's, it's, it's self-contained in a way that, you know, it's not trying to lead us on to the next 17 different Marvel films. And I thought Hemsworth kind of, you know, I like this, you know, it is a little bit weird. He's he's kind of suffering from, uh, Hemsworth's story is kind of suffering from Joey from Friends syndrome, which is to say that the longer that this thing goes on, the more the more stupid the character becomes. Um, but he's very, very good at it. And to be honest, I think I would watch maybe one more. I'm not quite done with it yet, but I would watch another uh, Taika Waititi Thor film. Oh God, no! I think I'd have to get rid of him. I, I think that's it. Now I'd be done. But I liked it because it was just it was Masters of the Universe. It was the the dumbest, most fun He Man film that wasn't you know that didn't have He Man in it. So I, I like Hemsworth as the Mimbo, but like Chris said, unfortunately I'm agreeing with him. It is that Joey from Friends thing where it's like you've gone from a normal person to somebody who's too stupid to know how a phone works. 
That's a really good yeah comparison. I just was so disappointed in it. I was like, going, oh no, and those goats, those bloody goats. I was like, ah, <laughs> oh. you know, he was a Family Guy toward the end. It would really stretch out a gag to the point where he was going, I know what this is being annoying now for the audience, and it was almost like Taika Waititi knew what he was doing. Um, guys, unfortunately, time has caught up with us, and um, but but just before we do, Chris, very very quickly, we just want to make a reference to an Irish film, Rosie and Frank, which is playing at select cinemas. Why should people go and see it? Uh, because it's a lovely idea, very well executed by a talented group of Irish filmmakers by the name of uh, Peter Murphy and Rachel Moriarty. It's about a middle-aged widow uh, named Rosha, played by Breedy Nocton, who two years after the death of her husband is basically struggling to adapt to a life without her beloved Frank. And one day, this stray lurcher terrier shows up on her ward for doorstep and she becomes convinced, for reasons that the film will better explain, that this dog is her reincarnated husband. And although everyone in her village kind of thinks he's you know, lost the plot, they eventually come around to the idea that her hurling husband or her, her hurling mad husband has come back as a dog and it sounds quite barmy but the filmmakers they you know they, they run a steady ship they keep things quite tight and they kind of use you know small town wish and playful absurdity to explore some very relatable themes you know grief longing acceptance it's heartbreaking it's funny and it's also really well performed so it's another stellar Irish language feature I think great stuff out of 10 Chris very quick oh solid 8 out of 10 there you go. Um, there's on Colin Kuhn, which has been on everyone's nearly best list. And uh, to follow that up with uh, Rosie and Frank, another stellar um, Irish language film hitting cinemas this weekend. That is our lot for this week. Chris Wasser, Andy McCarroll, pleasure as always for me, Gordon Hayden. We'll chat to you next week on We Love Movies.